0: Well, it's time now for us to hear the word of God, and we're going to hear it in a different language. I'd like to invite Pastor
1: Jesus Gonzalez, the pastor of our Hispanic church, to come and read God's word for us this morning. Good morning, Iglesia. Good morning. I'm going to read Isaiah 54, verse 1 through 5 in Spanish. Follow along, please. Regocíjate, oh estéril, la que no daba luz. Levanta canción y da voces de júbilo. La que nunca estuvo de parto, porque más son los hijos de la desamparada que los de la casada, ha dicho Jehová. Ensancha el sitio de tu tienda y las cortinas de tus habitaciones sean extendidas. No seas escasa, alarga tus cuerdas y fuerza tus estacas, porque te extenderás a la mano derecha y a la mano izquierda, y tu descendencia heredará naciones y habitará las ciudades asoladas. No temas, pues no serás confundida, y no te avergüences, porque no serás afrentada, sino que te olvidarás de la vergüenza de tu juventud, y de la afrenta de tu viudez no tendrás más memoria. Porque tu marido es tu hacedor, Jehová de los ejércitos es su nombre, y tu Redentor, el Santo de Israel, Dios de toda la tierra, será llamado. Dice la Señor.
0: Thank you, Pastor Jesus, and good morning, everyone. Such a special day for us today as we launch into our uh, Missions Emphasis Month, as we just uh, focus our attention outside of Indianapolis and really ask ourselves, uh, what is it that God would have us do as a church uh, to reach unreached people groups? So let's pray and um, look at William Carey. Father in heaven, we uh, ask for you today to be in our midst and give us a global vision. We are very prone to be a people only concerned about our own field of vision, our own issues, our own needs. And while those needs are important today, although we've sung about them saying, Lord, I know that I can make it. Um, I know that I can stand because of our hope and our trust in you. We we want you to give us a vision beyond just our individual circumstances um, and instead give us an eclipsing vision of the world. And so increase our uh, purview today. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would birth within the hearts of our people individually a burden for what our place is personally as a family in the, the scope and the scale of foreign missions. I, I pray, Lord, for some here who will listen um, in this facility this morning or in Worship too or on the podcast who you have your hand on their heart right now and are calling them to leave uh, a life of Um, familiarity and family and relative comfort and to pursue a global evangelism effort and so i pray that god this would be part of the fabric of what you're weaving in their life in terms of your will so use today and be exalted we pray in jesus name amen in 1792 a 31-year-old English pastor stood to preach before a gathering of local clergy. His text was Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. Here's how it sounded in the King James. Enlarge the place of thy tent... And let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. The title of his message was Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. And it was a revolutionary call For the church to see beyond its boundaries and to see how they could reach what was then called the quote-unquote heathen lands. The heathen, as they were called, were the passion of a young pastor whose name was William Carey. He would eventually be called the father of modern missions, but during his day, this passion that Carey had was viewed with contempt He was viewed as a young upstart with grandiose plans. In fact, it had only been one year earlier that he had stood in a similar gathering of clergy and, and stood to his feet imploring them to catch a vision for how to reach unreached people in these heathen lands and to which a longtime friend and mentor then rebuked him saying, Young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. This was the attitude of the church. But you see, God was pleased to convert the heathen, and he did it providentially through William Carey, who blazed the trail that we now walk on. He was a man who expected great things from God. He was a man who attempted great things for God. He was a man who today we stand on the shoulders of in terms of his impact as really the father of modern-day missions. So today, what my aim is, is for you to see the beautiful providential tapestry of God's work in life in William Carey's heart, and for you to be able to see in the midst of his pain, his struggle, his calling, his burden, his passion, and his triumph, a man who God remarkably used. And I show you his life today with the aim of having you answer this question. What is your radical call? What is your place in doing something that is somewhat out of the box? What is your place in global evangelism? What is the thing that you and your family are going to do in terms of your part in in reaching the world for Christ? My fear is, is that many many believers come to church week after week after week and the world and the the mission of global evangelism is not often on our minds and hearts and what i hope today will happen and the course of this whole month is that you'll begin to get a little bit of a bigger view of what your role could be there may be some of you who god wants to call you and launch you into to full-time missionary service there's others of you who are reaching retirement age and rather than spending your retirement here in the states you could actually be used as a finisher in another country and self-fund your own efforts or maybe just on a part-time basis there's others of you that as we approach december and we take our christmas offering for you to realize that one of the most substantial and tangible things that you can do is to give generously because money makes a difference in terms of global evangelism to give is not a small thing or a second rate thing it is a, a wonderful means for by which you're able to help the church of jesus christ accomplish its global effort so my aim today is to try and remind us about this concept of unreached people groups and to see it through the life particularly of William Carey. On August 17, 1761, William Carey was born to Mr. and Mrs. Edmund Carey. His father was a weaver, the father of four additional children after William. At age six, his father was given the post of a parish clerk and a village schoolmaster. The school, the village, and Carey's home were very primitive And so was his education. All of his life, Carey referred to himself as an ignorant man. His father was a man of strict integrity, who often read from the scriptures, although remarkably was not genuinely converted. Was a religious man, but it was a mere formality. At age 12, Carey was following the path of most kids his age, and in his village, he was uh, beginning to work the field. With a nominal education, he was going to be a laborer. However, in God's providence, Carey had a disease that affected his hands and his face whenever he was exposed to the sun. And after two years of trying to work in the fields and endure this agony, he was finally given a gracious apprenticeship in a shoemaker's shop in the neighboring village. Thus, Carey became known as the cobbler. God's providence had already begun to move. Carry the cobbler found himself now in the company of some very worldly men, and by Carry's own admission began to drink the full cup of all of the sinfulness that was connected with his village culture. At the end of the second year of his apprenticeship, his cobbler boss died, and Carry, again in God's providence was transferred to another cobbler in the same village whose name was Mr. Old, an unfortunate name, no doubt. But in Mr. Old's workshop, there was another apprentice who was part of what was called the dissenters movement. Now, for those of you not familiar with this, the dissenter movement was a group of churches who broke away from the established church of England. And their aim was to return the church back to its purity, to the scriptures and to personal holiness. They were often persecuted uh, by the established church. This elder apprentice um, had many views that carrie was interested in and there were many discussions even arguments within that particular workshop but it was the consistent life of this elder apprentice that slowly won Carry over and he began to attend um, weekly prayer meetings with this elder apprentice carrie found himself unusually attracted to the godliness and the fidelity of this dissenter movement He eventually became a regular attender at the church and began some very serious heart-searching. And after a two-year journey of searching, Carey received Christ. The final decision came through the reading of a tract, a simple tract that identified the heart of the gospel. And what had happened is God had clearly drawn William Carey to himself. He now was a gospel man. Some of you may not be familiar with what I mean by that word gospel. You may have heard it, Good News News the gospel that carrie received is the gospel that we preach here at college park and it's this that god is holy and men and women are sinful and that creates a problem god and his holiness cannot allow man in our sinfulness to remain as we are there's punishment for our sins and the message of the bible or the good news is that god has made a way for human beings who are sinful to be forgiven of their many many sins and while All other religions around the world believe that in order to be forgiven of your sins, you have to do right things in order to balance the scale. Christianity, like no other religion on the planet, says no. You can never balance the scales. Instead, what you need is someone else's righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness given to you from another. Someone else has to pay your atonement, and that was and is the person of Christ. So the grand scheme of the Bible and the beautiful news about the gospel is that somebody else paid for our sins. And that person is Christ, which is why as Christians, the cross is a sacred symbol. Because Christ and his atonement means everything to us. In fact, the scripture says that there is salvation in no other name except Jesus. And so while many other religions around the world would claim to be the path of eternal life, Christianity holds the exclusive claim to that path because there is no other salvation other than Christ. And that is the gospel that Carey received. That's the gospel that causes us to give the missions. It's the gospel that brings us here on this very day. It's the gospel that you need to know and receive, or this very day you stand under judgment of a holy God. And it's that gospel that William Carey received and then gave his life to. Carey found his spiritual home among the Baptists of England and became a budding preacher in the surrounding villages. Remarkably, while he's still fixing shoes, he learned Greek, Latin, and Hebrew from any minister who would give him time. Just before he was 20 years old, he married Dorothy Plackett, his first wife. There'll be three over time. And he took control of the cobbler business after the death of his employer. Unfortunately, not long afterward, there was a depression in the trade, and Kerry lost the business. As well, his first child died, and he was tormented by an illness that left him prematurely bald and unable to work for nearly a year. So be hopeful, those of you who are follically challenged. The, <laughs> the father of modern missions was part of the Fellowship of the Foreheads as well. So. <laughs> the village that Carry lived in was called Hackleton. It is no coincidence that in the nearby village of Olney, there was a tremendous treasure trove of wonderful preachers of the gospel. Not the least of which was John Newton, who had been the pastor of a church there. As well, William Cooper was a poet. You probably have sung his hymns before, one of which is God Moves in Mysterious Ways. There were three known Baptist pastors who had great influence on Carey. They were Sutcliffe, Ryland, and Fuller. Carey joined Sutcliffe's church and was baptized in 1783. And Sutcliffe helped form Carey's theology, his view of ministry. One evening a month, Sutcliffe's church would set aside time for interdenominational prayer meetings. As well, they published many sermons and writings by Jonathan Edwards. And this this prayer meeting and gathering at Sutcliffe's church were by divine design. They became um, the fuel, if you will, that would eventually create a vast missionary enterprise that you'll see and hear about in a moment. One biographer says this about the city in which Carry lives. Nowhere in England could there have been found a more favorable spot for Carrie's peculiar character and mission. Only was created by God as a cradle for the mighty enterprise of foreign missions. Listen to me. God has ordained the home that you're born in. He has ordained the experiences of your life. You have no idea how God can use the cradle that you've been put into for his glory and the good of the church. In 1786, Carey was granted his first church in Moulton. It was a small church, and he went there because he could still teach, which he hated, by the way, as a way to supplement his income in this very small church. His favorite subject to teach was geography, and uh, Carey taught from a globe that he had made. He also had a growing burden for what was happening around the world, and he would take pieces of paper and, and post them, in order to help remind him and his students on this large map that he had created uh, in terms of what each country was like. So he would research details on these various countries, population, religion, government, customs. And what was happening here is that there was this emerging burden within Carey's heart, not only for the gospel, but also for the world. But thinking about the world was not popular during Carey's day. In fact, soon after he began to think this way, he attended this meeting of Baptist pastors, and this is where he stood and unleashed his vision, where he was sternly rejected. When he was told, young man, sit down, for when God chooses to reach the heathen, he will do so without your aid or mine. But undaunted, Carey went back, still forming in his mind and heart this passion, and wrote a pamphlet called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Now, by the way, that's a summary. Here's the full title. An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens in Which the Religious State of the Different Nations of the World, the Success of Former Undertakings, and the Practicality of Further Undertakings are Considered. So that's the title, okay, by William Carey. By the way, you can access this online. I've got a link... In my sermon notes, it would really commend it to you. It's a a wonderful document that just uncaps the heart of this um, beautiful missionary. You get a sense of his passion. In fact, I want to read a couple sections to you. Carey believed that the unconverted state of the world demanded the church's attention. He found it outrageous. That the East India Company had found ways to get to India, bring their product to India, and India's product to Great Britain, and yet the church was sitting on its hands thinking, we can't get there. If you've traveled around the world, you know it's amazing where you can find products from the United States. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, the God-forbidden drink called Fanta in the middle of uh, different areas of of the world. Uh, For instance, when I was in Manila in the 1990s, I was amazed and rejoiced that there was a pizza hut in the middle of the city. And just, it was like the oasis in the midst of a missions trip. And the reality is, if Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and Pizza Hut use such strong energies to get their product into the hands of the people, wouldn't it make sense that people who have a higher calling to get their message into the hearts and minds of people wouldn't use the same, if not more, energy to find creative ways to deliver their goods when the goods are eternal? And that's what was burning within William Carey's heart. Listen to what he said. After all, the uncivilized state of the heathen, instead of affording an objection against preaching the gospel to them, ought to furnish an argument for it. Can we as men or as Christians hear that a great part of our fellow creatures whose souls are as immortal as ours and who are as capable of ourselves as ourselves of adorning the gospel and contributing by their preaching, writings, or practice to the glory of our Redeemer's name and the good of His church are enveloped in ignorance and barbarism? Can we hear that they are without the gospel, without government, without laws, and without arts and sciences, and not exert ourselves to introduce amongst them the sediments of men and of Christians? Would not the spread of the gospel be the most effectual means of their civilization? So carries arguing here that it is the gospel that brings peace in the midst of a society. He was not afraid to call the church to sacrifice. Here's what he says about ministry. A Christian minister is a person who, in a peculiar sense, is not his own. He is the servant of God and therefore ought to be wholly devoted to him. By entering on that sacred office, he solemnly undertakes to be always engaged as much as possible in the Lord's work and not to choose his own pleasure or employment or pursue the ministry as something to be subserve his own ends or interests or as a kind of bywork. He engages to go where God pleases and to do or to endure as he sees fit to command or to call him to in the exercise of his function. He virtually bids farewell to friends, to pleasures and comforts and stands in readiness to endure the greatest sufferings in the work of his Lord and Master. Carry was lit up for the glory of God. He had a vision of heaven filled with the glory of God through a global effort. Listen to what he says. What a heaven it will be to see the many myriads of poor heathens, of Britons amongst the rest, who by their labors have been brought to the knowledge of God. Surely a crown of rejoicing like this is worth aspiring to. Surely it is worthwhile to lay ourselves out with all our might in promoting the cause and the kingdom of Christ. Missions, friends, was his unrelenting passion. And one person at a time, William Carey began unloading his burden. However, as is so often the case with those who have radical burdens birthed by God, his family and friends told him it was a waste of time. But perseverance paid off. In 1792, he was asked to be the speaker at the Baptist Association meeting in Nottingham. And it's there where Carey preaches his famous sermon from Isaiah 54 in which his two points were, number one, expect great things from God, and two, attempt great things for God. And in that sermon, he earnestly pled for the salvation of the heathen and rebuked the church for its ineffectiveness and indifference. And by the end of the message, the pastors were deeply affected. Something had to be done. They agreed to call for a meeting in October of that same year, and the first Baptist Missionary Society was formed. Its mission was to, quote, carry the gospel to some portion of the heathen world. Now, at this point, Carey had not decided to go to India. They had no idea where they were going to go. They were just agreed on the fact that something needed to be done, and they needed to be a part of the solution. At the end of the meeting, Carey rose to his feet and formally offered himself for the pioneering work. You see, he was not only ready to call the church to action, he was ready to be the first to sign up. He was ready to go to any part of the world that they might decide upon. And so what happens here is that God uses this ignorant cobbler, by his own admission, to be a pioneer to reach the heathen lands. And what was happening is that God was providentially orchestrating all the events of Carrie's life. Nothing was wasted. And put this huge burden within his heart that would not go away. In order to help him be the spade that would churn up the hardened dirt of a lack of concern for global evangelism that had plagued the church. After finally convincing the association in 1792 that it was time to reach the heathen lands, Carey now had to turn his dreams into reality. And this would prove difficult and painful. His father, upon hearing the burden of Carey's heart, said, Is William mad? His wife, Dorothy, was timid by nature and unappreciative of her husband's passion. She refused to go. Carrie had said that perhaps he should go take his oldest son, set up the home for the family, and then bring Dorothy over later. And eventually, Dorothy decides to go, but very reluctantly and and quite resistantly. Amazingly, the decision yet as to where he was to go had not yet been made. He had decided, we're going to go, but he didn't know where. And about that time, a letter had been received from a man by the last name of Thomas. Thomas, God used in a marvelous way. Here is a a surgeon who's a layman in the Baptist church who of his own accord goes to India and begins using his gifts as a surgeon in that country as a freelance missionary. Thomas returns having seen the opportunity and sends this letter to Carrie, pleading with him to consider going to India. And after reading the letter, the decision was made to send Carrie there. It was determined that the Carries would go in the spring, but there were two problems: money and the East India Trading Company. See, the East India Trading Company controlled all passage rights to India as a monopoly, and the company was not favorable towards the spread of Christianity and would have never granted them license or passage to come. And so, the Mission Society figured out how do we get around this, and eventually found a way to get into the country under the banner of the Danish government, and in. June of seventeen ninety-three, the carries with three children and one on the way. Why well, just imagine that three children and one on the way left for India and they would never see England again. In November, five months later, seventeen ninety-three, they landed in India. Five months. So I complain about a twelve to thirteen hour airplane ride with people serving me and movies to India. This is five months. There's not a word, lag, that fits with that kind of boat lag. It doesn't even fit for what that would be like. God had put Kerry into the most strategic of all fields, and yet his vision was not just for India. No, his vision was for the globe. Here's what he wrote in his journal on the way over. I hope that the society will go on and increase and that the multitude of the heathen in the world may hear the glorious words of truth. Africa is but a little way from England. Madagascar a bit further. A large field opens on every side. When they landed, the environment in India was less than hospitable. The East India Company had a monopoly on land, and they forbade any attempts to evangelize. The mission society and incorrectly figured how much money they would need to survive. The cost of living in Calcutta was a lot higher. His children suffered from dysentery. The weather was miserable. Kerry said about the weather, You bake for four months, boil for four more, and spend the next four trying to get cool. Only the insects and undertakers enjoy the climate. That's his perspective. The cost on his family was great, and it showed particularly in the case of Mrs. Carey. They were barely out to sea when her resistance to this work became clear with her, quote, ceaseless reproaches, complaints about their poverty, Complaints about their difficult existence abounded. While in Calcutta, Carey began the language and translation work, but the environment in this city was literally killing his family, and so he was forced to move south down the river into the wilderness. The thought was, if we move south, can find a plot of land, I can grow some crops and maybe live off of them. But this proved to be even more difficult. And so here is Carey in the first few years of his ministry, a lonely vagrant living on the land, trying to build a house. While his family is starving in the middle of the wilderness. This is not what he signed up for. But God had not forgotten about him. A year or so earlier, Thomas had met a man, an Indian, who was in charge of a commercial factory at Malda, an indigo factory. And he offered Thomas a position in that factory. And this good friend remembered William and brought him to the factory along with him. And this new position literally saved the Carries from starvation and also freed him up from governmental suspicion. He had a real job and now could operate in the country. Using this position at the Indigo factory, Carey was able to travel and preach and dialogue with anyone who would listen. He organized worship services at the factory and worked on the translation of the Bengali New Testament. Note that. You can move the man to a different role or a different position, but the passion remains the same, so you just find another way to do what God's called you to do. You hold the details loosely, but your passion is clear. And whether you're working in a factory or you're trying to grow a farm in the southern India, the passion for the ministry remains the same. It was a four-year project, this translation work. And finally, it was completed, and then they needed to figure out how to have it printed. And the cost to have this copy of the Bible to be printed in India was enormous and prohibitive. But amazingly, in God's providence, the Lord provided a wooden printer that was for sale, and Carry was able to buy that printer for one-tenth of the cost. This represents kind of a turning in Carry's life, a bright spot. For the first seven years, there was incredibly costly and painful moments. Carry was constantly sick. His little son, Peter, died of fever, and this death of their child sent his wife, Dorothy, over the edge. She began to lose touch with reality, and if you can imagine this, for the next 12 years, she was confined to her room and most often restrained until her death in 1807. Carey would then marry two other times. In 1808, he married Charlotte Rumor, who became the love of his life. Although she had been injured as a child from a fire, she was a godly, supportive, and beloved partner in the work. So the work continued at this indigo factory, but unfortunately the factory wasn't profitable and eventually it closed. And as new missionaries came to the field, Carey uh, saw an opportunity and they relocated the work to the city of Serampore, where he would spend the next 34 years of his life sarampore was in danish control and in fact they were invited to come there by the governing colonel and the, the colonel had invited them to come and remarkably to build churches to open schools and start a press and preach all around the country under the protection of the danish government and thus was formed what has become known as the sarampore trio and that was carry marshman and ward ward was in charge of printing marshman in charge of schools and after a few months into the settlement at Serampore, Ward handed Carey the first printed copy of the entire New Testament. Life at Serampore began to hum with evangelistic opportunity and great expansion. Listen to this report. After six years, they had recorded six stations in Bengal with full-time missionaries four other occupied by natives eight other stations in surrounding regions they had recorded 765 baptisms the new testament had been printed in a dozen languages in india along with grammar books there were 10 plus elementary schools and a seminary and in 1803 Carey's son started the first sunday school in fact what one biographer says this is the day when the day of grace began in carry 's life the, the son of god's blessing in terms of Success in the work began. Carey became a master of the language. In fact, so much so that in 1800, when Fort William College was formed in Calcutta, they asked Carey to come and be a professor in languages of Bengali. And what he did is he used the position as professor, leveraged that in order to reach the metropolitan area of Calcutta. Every Monday he would board a boat from Sarampore to Calcutta, 18 miles away. Four days he would spend in Calcutta and then return to the work at Sarampore. Translation work took off at Serampore. This was Carey's um, greatest and most significant achievement. With the vision of the Bengali Bible complete, the sarampore trio set their sights on the translations of all the languages in the east their site was not just set on india but but every people group that needed the bible they wanted to find a way to translate it so a huge hall was set up with multiple translators and the entire process of translating the bible and then printing it was perfected sarampore became a machine of translation work trying to get the bible into the languages of the people around them and then in march of 1812 a horrible tragedy happened what is now the famous fire took place in the warehouse and this huge fire consumed all of Carey's manuscripts all of his dictionaries 14 sets of type for eastern languages I mean, can you imagine? You've spent your entire life, you're you're beginning to become the epicenter of translation work. You've found a way to be able to print the Bible and distribute it. There are thousands of people around the region who are going to receive God's Word, and you've perfected it, and then a fire, and it's all gone. Carey was crushed, and yet, in the midst of the crushing moment, he trusted in the providence of God. Listen to what he said to the chaplain of Fort William at fort william he said this in one short evening the labor of years are consumed how unsearchable are the ways of god would you say that how unsearchable are the ways of god you know what he's saying there he's saying who knows what god's purposes are and then he said this listen for the humility of this man i had lately brought something to the utmost perfection of which they seemed capable he's talking about printing and contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation what's he doing there he's acknowledging that his identity and even his own pride was too much tied to what they were doing and then he says this the lord has laid me low that i may look more simply to him listen if you want to do great things for god if you want to expect great things from god here's lesson number one that you have to get into your brain and heart we are expendable and the things that we create can become too much have too much attachment to our hearts god loves to use humble people because he knows that if he blesses humble people they won't be competitors for his glory and good and this is what william Carey was all about now, now, providentially, this fire, which would have seemed to have completely devastated the ministry, now made the work in India famous. God used tragedy to send the word around the globe of what Kerry was doing. Word of the fire spread all over Europe and America, and within 50 days, 10,000 English pounds poured into the mission society. One member of the mission society said, We must tell the people to stop giving. That marks the first missionary to ever say that. <laughs> And I'm sure his comrades said, no, 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 no. That may have worked for Moses in the Old Testament, but these are new days, bro. We need that money. The work continued on at Sarampore through numerous trials and numerous victories, including the establishment of Sarampore College in 1818. By the way, when I was in India a couple years ago, the uh, accrediting agency for the country of schools, the, the accrediting agency for schools in the country is to this day still called the Sarampore Accreditation. The word in Sanskrit for school means building attached to church. Carrie's influence is stunning on the country of India. There were multiple tragedies. A horrible flood nearly destroyed the compound. There were, there were many frictions among the missionaries. People are people. A uh, mission agency was struggling to keep up with all the challenges. There were financial difficulties. And then there was the death of his colleague of 23 years, Mr. Ward. His second wife died in 1822. He married a third time to Grace Hughes, and they spent the last ten years of Carey's life immersed in the work at Serampore. So William Carey and his influence on global missions cannot be overstated. He was a famous missionary, a great translator, an educator. He introduced the steam engine to India. He perfected printing. He fought for social justice. It was because of him that a a practice in India called sati, where at the death of a husband, the wife would willingly commit suicide in mourning. And he fought to see that practiced and won to see that abolished. He fought for social justice, for rights of women and children. For him, it was just simply the overflow of gospel good in the land. So in light of that, let me give you some conclusions about his life and things for us to think about. Here's the first one. Friends, God is pleased to glorify himself through unlikely people. One biographer says this, Carey was a pioneer of the modern Western Christianary movement reaching to all parts of the world, a pioneer of the Protestant church in India, the translator and publisher of the Bible in 40 different Indian languages. Carey was an evangelist who used every available medium to illuminate every dark facet of Indian life. He is the central character in the story of India's modernization. It's William Carey, a gospel-centered man. And it seems to me... That it's just remarkable that God uses a simple shoe cobbler, a shoe cobbler, in order to transform a country. And yet, Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So normal, undervalued, Ignorant, not very usable people, those are the kind of folks who God loves to use. You know why? Because when God blesses, no one will look at your life and say, oh, it's because you're so smart. (laughs) So what is God looking for? God is looking simply for usable people who we can use in remarkable ways. One of our missionaries that I was having lunch with a few weeks ago, um, his responsibility is to try and reach Muslims for Christ, and I asked him. I said, "So tell me how you got into this. What were you doing before you became a full-time missionary?" And he laughed. I said, "What's so funny?" He said, "Well, you're just not going to believe what I was doing before." I was like, "Okay." He said, "I was in landscape design." And he goes, "Who would have thought?" And yet I thought, "Well, God thinks like that because He loves to use people who." You wouldn 't think would be usable because that way God can receive even more glory, and so you may be here and think, how could God ever use me and my meager talents, meager abilities, and you have no idea how a ready heart and a humble heart can be useful to a king of kings and lord of lords who wants to receive much glory from the world don't underestimate a useful and humble heart that God can use. Secondly. God's undergirding providence is both traumatic and comforting. By undergirding providence, I mean that all the events of William William Carey's life were ordained and orchestrated by God. You can see it when you look at his life from a historical perspective. But in the middle of it, it's really hard to remember that God's really got a plan. And what you need to see is that missions work here is often filled with difficulty and hardship. But when you can take a step back and survey the totality of a person's life, you can really see the beauty of God's providence. And why is that important? It's important because all of us are in the midst of God's providential work right now. And you have no idea how he's going to use this dark moment in your life for his glory and perhaps even for the spread of the gospel. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope, and He will deliver us again in 1993 i called my wife crying from a hotel room in new york city and told her honey i don't know how to explain this to you but this mission field that i just was in ghana west africa is closed to us we can't go after raising support for six months showing it to a number of churches 85 percent of our support raised this door is closed i call it the dark side of the will of god for our family had no idea It was so hard, so painful, so confusing, and yet it is this very same field that we just had six physicians in in a hospital in Togo, West Africa. And it is for me, when I was there with Nate and a team, just to realize it was in this very house where I prayed, God, I don't know what you're doing or why you're closing this door, but you are. And I don't understand it, but you are worthy to be trusted. And on the scale of human history and in the history of my own life, I can see the providential hand of God. But in the moment of that hour of trial, it was really hard to remember that God is good. So don't ever think that the hard and painful circumstances of your life somehow aren't a part of God's providential plan. You have no idea how God couldn't be using the dark side of his will to form a bright side of his will in later days. Remember the fire that wiped Carrie out was the thing that gave a platform for the exposure of that ministry. Third and finally, reaching the unreached is worth unconventional sacrifice carrie's life was radical for his day and age he carried a lonely burden but it was a worthy one god birthed within his heart this desire for personal and corporate sacrifice in order to reach people who were unreached what do we mean by unreached we don't just mean people who are unsaved by unreached we mean people not just who haven't heard we mean people who can't hear there's a difference some people haven't heard and they can but the unreached are in a doubly difficult scenario it's not only that they haven't heard but they can't hear because there's government and culture and society and hindrances and location it means a group that even if they wanted to wouldn't have access to the gospel that we know and it is this kind of people that was on carrie's heart and it is this kind of people that we have seven partners who are trying to reach they are hard to get to as nate says unreached people are unreached for a reason They're expensive, they're costly, they're hard, and that's why as a church we're focused on trying to get the gospel to those people so they can have access to the glorious message that presently they don't have. Unreached people are different than your unsaved neighbor. Your neighbor could hear, might hear. In an unreached group, they won't hear unless something is done. And that's why the call is urgent, because they won't hear unless we do something. And that's why radical sacrifice is worthy of consideration. Revelation 7 gives us this vision. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation and tongue standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God. Our God. Who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So the question is, is what is your part of this radical commitment to make a difference for the cause of Christ? And, and don't look down your nose, please, at the people in 1700s about how how ignorant and insensitive they were, calling them heathen and this lack of concern, because that mentality still exists today. In fact, in David Platt's book, he tells a shocking story about gathering together with a uh, pastor and, El- and pastor and deacons, and he says this. I told them about the people's receptivity to the gospel in places that are traditionally hostile to Christianity. I told them that whether in the inner city or overseas, God was drawing people to Himself in some of the toughest places of the world expecting them to share my excitement i paused to listen for their response and after an awkward silence one of the deacons leaned forward in his chair looked at me and said david i think it's great you're going to those places but if you ask me i just as soon as god would annihilate all those people and send them all to hell the reason that we need to be doing what we're doing is because this particular mentality still exists either implicitly or explicitly explicitly exists with horrible words like that implicitly it exists by simply doing nothing when we have the power within us to do something about it during a visit to the ailing carry a friend and he spent some time in prayer as his friend left Mr. Carey said to him, you know, while you've been here, you've been speaking about Dr. Carey this and Dr. Carey that. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak only about Dr. Carey's Savior. On June 9, 1834, William Carey quietly passed away in the presence of his beloved laborers. And the next morning, he was buried on the mission grounds. He chose a simple inscription, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. This is the father of modern missions. On thy kind arms I fall. Oh, Father, we pray that the things that we cling to would grow strangely dim in light of the glory and grace of the Gospel. Lord, I pray that you would birth from College Park a group of people who would be relentless in their passion to reach unreached people. Perhaps, Lord, you want to use someone in the finishing category, at the end, towards their retirement. Perhaps somebody in a short-term assignment or somebody who today feels your call to say, this burden I have put within your heart. Now go. Oh, Lord, help those who aren't sent to give. Help those who are sent to do it with passion. And we pray that in the midst of all of the entanglements of our world, that we would give generously, we would love radically, and we would take this call to reach unreached peoples seriously. Lord, we need your help. We want to expect great things from you and to attempt great things for you. So give us a heart like William Carey. Give us a love for Jesus and give us a heart for the nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.